Amen. Well, we are going to bring our covenant relationship series to a conclusion. And I do want to uh, look at the final two rewards of being in a covenant relationship. For those of you, if you're joining with us for the first time, we spent the last uh, few weeks looking at uh, covenant relationships in the Bible, specifically a relationship between David and Jonathan. And uh, we, we talked about a lot of different things. I just want to give you a brief recap of what we talked about last week. Uh, we talked about having uh, the rewards, a few rewards we looked at were personal growth. You know, just having our, uh, someone invested in our spiritual life, someone invested in us being more like Jesus. And then we also talked about leaving behind a legacy, investing into other people, not just being people who are poured into, but also pouring into others. You know, you want to mature in your faith, you got to give it away. I think sometimes we think like we do with our money. I want to be rich, so I'll keep it to myself. But God's philosophy is, in his eyes, you're rich when you give away. So our faith matures when we give. Amen? And then the last reward we looked at is, well, more, it was more like a warning. We want to avoid being a part of a closed system where we don't have people involved in our relationships, our dating relationships, our marriage, our parenting. Uh, so these are areas where we definitely want people, people to be involved in our lives and not just, uh, you know, not just surfacy, but really getting in there, helping us out with these relationships. So we want to avoid being a part of a closed system. Now today, I'd like to take a look at two more relationships. Let me come out here and see. Is it better? All right. I'd like to take a look at two more relationships in the Covenant Relationship Series. And the first one being being a part of a proactive approach to life and not reactive. Does that make sense? You know, I think we would, uh, our health would be at a better place for a lot of us if we were more proactive about our health. We go to the doctor, see the brain, I'm talking to the brothers right here, because I think the sisters are a lot better at this than we are. We don't go to the dentist until we got a toothache. We don't go to the doctor until our knees hurt. And then we, we, that's so, it's like, you know, we want to be more proactive. We want to have a proactive approach to our relationship with God. We don't want to wait until things go south to start getting help. And so there's a lot of rewards and benefits that come from being in a relationship where people are helping you out before. Amen? Does that make sense? You know, Benjamin Franklin, he said, it is easier to prevent bad habits than to break them. I, I agree with that. He also said an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. He said this during the time where he spoke to some firefighters about cutting down trees in the area. He said, look, just be a little proactive here than to get into a fire and then have to get and invest and waste those resources when we can be proactive. And, you know, it's the same thing about relationships. When it comes to helping people in a crisis, it takes a lot of resources, a lot of people resources to help put out some of the fires. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. We want to be proactive. We don't want to, to be a church where everybody's running around helping people in a crisis. That's not attractive. When you come to a church and everybody you're talking to is in a crisis, they're like, what? going on with these people? We, we want to be proactive. We want to help people before. This is why we study the Bible with people, because we want them to know what to expect before they get baptized. We don't want to tell, oh, by the way, you're going to struggle with this. You're going to need to do it. No, no, no. We, we want to be proactive, right? So with a proactive approach to discipling, you get input you seek counsel and you desire wisdom. You don't wait around for people to tell you what to do. You go after it. You initiate, right? You're aware. You know what could happen if your sinful nature goes unchecked. You know, we need to know ourselves well enough to know when we need to get help. We need to know, we, look, and, and if you've tried to work on something and change something in your character and you're still working on it, you're still 
Maybe you should get somebody else involved. But we got to know ourselves well enough to know, okay, I can't go in this situation and be the same person. I'm going to need somebody to have my back right here. You have a safe place to be known and confess sin and temptation on a regular basis. The Bible teaches us in James 5 that we should pray for, we should confess sin to each other. Not for the sake of forgiveness, because God forgives sin. We confess to keep our hearts pure before God, to keep our conscience clear before God, and for prayer. We need help. We need other people involved in our lives. And so, you know, we all need to have a safe place. People that we trust, people that we can go to and talk to and, 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 and confess without feeling weird or like you're being judged. Because, look, at the end of the day, everybody here sins. No one can point a finger to you and say, you're a worse sinner than I am. We're all jacked up. That's what makes the church so special, is that you get a bunch of messed up people in the same room, and we can sing songs like Someday. Because there's hope in Jesus. There's hope in forgiveness. And so we're here to remind each other Jesus is real. When I look at Junior Hickman, I'm like, there is a God. He is alive. In him we live and we survive. I mean, when I see the Lord save people like Junior, I can't be like, man, I mean, that, that encourages my faith. And then when I talk about my life, and they're like, what? You did what? Man, I'm glad Jesus saved you. So when we come to church, man, we're just reminding each other that there is a God. Together. You implement safeguards and behavioral changes. You repent. Our times together should be pushing us towards repentance, towards uh, preventing these temptations, you know, confessing sin at the temptation level, not after you've already been involved in a cycle of sin. By that time, we need to take other, other, other steps to, to bring about change. But being proactive is, man, I'm going to confess now. I'm going to get open at the temptation level. Because temptation is his way of convincing us that we are stronger than what we really are. And when we confess at the temptation, we're admitting to God that I am still powerless to this. And I still need people in my life. Now with the reactive approach to discipling, you tend to only fully engage once you're in a crisis and become known as, uh, as consequences arise. You know, you only go for help when you're in, in, in a bad situation. And by that time, for some people, it's too late. And so you don't want to be, you don't want to go after help when you're already in the midst of a crisis. You know, another thing is the issue may have been preventable if it was identified and addressed no early. How many have you tried to warn somebody and say, hey, you know what, I think this is going to turn out bad Maybe you shouldn't do that. I, and then afterwards, what do, and, and they don't listen. And then what, what do you end up wanting to say? I told you so, right? I, and it's hard. We don't want to say that, but in our minds and our hearts, we're thinking it. We're sitting and saying, I knew this wasn't going to work out. I, I, but what do we do? We love them anyway, right? I know I've blown it many times. They're, in my heart, I'm listening to the advice, but, it, but it, in mind, I'm listening. But in my heart, I'm like, I, my mind's already made up. And by that time, you go and you do what you do, and the next thing you do, well, you, you come right back to the same person and say, hey, I blew it. And they're like, didn't we talk about this? But you see, when you think as a reactive disciple, when you think in a reactive, you're so used to just doing what you want that you don't even think about the possibilities that, man, maybe there is another way to do this. Or maybe this is something that I should avoid. And so you want to be preventable. Preventive. Reactive discipling may be best described as putting out fires. I think that's one of my job descriptions. It wasn't when I got hired, but over the years it's become a part of my job description. Putting out fires. I don't want to spend my time putting out fires. I'm not a fireman. I'm a minister. I'm an evangelist. I don't have an FDNY helmet in my trunk. I don't ride around in a fire truck. No, I come to church just like you. I want to praise Jesus just like you. Most of the time, sometimes when 
When I'm dealing with people who are reactive, we're putting out fires. We're putting out fires. And it can be prevented. And I think that's the thing we got to understand, is that things can be prevented. Not all things, because there are other people who sin against us. You can't always prevent that. But what I'm saying is most of the things that we deal with can be prevented. And even some of the things that you, if you weren't in their, in their circle in the first place, you could have prevented something. All right? And then lastly, these problems may indeed require professional help. Or There are times when you're going to need something a little more extensive. You're going to need professional help. I wish I could help you with everything. I wish that my wife and I were endowed with the spirit times 10, that we could fix every problem in the church, but that's not the way God wanted it to be. God has given all of us, that's right, everybody, the competence to counsel. But there are times where you may go through life where you need someone who's trained to deal with your specific crisis. Does that make sense? And I think sometimes what can happen is we expect the church to fix everything in our lives and we get disappointed and discouraged and heartbroken when the church fails to meet those needs. But we got to be honest. We got to understand the church is not set up to meet all those specific needs. Spiritual needs, we try our best to do that. But it takes two of us to work together to that end. But when it comes to certain things outside, of the church, you got to be open to the fact that maybe the church can't help me with this. All right? And there are times when that is happening. Now, let me just say what I'm not saying. All right? What I'm not saying is discipling is always the answer. Because there are times when, you know, if you're going through grief and you're, you're going through different challenges in life, you may need some help outside. I'm not saying that we're, we're expecting everybody to be spiritual gurus, helping out every person that has a spiritual issue in their life. That's just not going to happen, all right? And I think sometimes and we expect people to be everything. We expect people to be spiritual gurus and therapists and financial advisors and life coaches and medical experts. Bro, you need to go look that, look that. You know, um, grief counselors, addiction specialists, marriage counselors. We want one person, one couple to be all these things in our life. And, and, and it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not realistic. There's a reason why Jesus had help. Because he didn't want to be that for everybody. He would never gotten anything done. And so he said, Peter, you guys go. What did Peter say when the Lord send these people home so they can get food? He said, you feed them. You're not going to get out of helping. You feed them. But Jesus delegated and eventually had to work on their faith and teach them a thing or two. But Jesus did not set up shop on the corner of, 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 of Jerusalem and Nazareth and, and say, hey, come and bring all your problems to me. No, what Jesus did was he met leads along the way. And he came with the purpose. And we do have a purpose to seek and to save the law. And God has given us all gifts that can help people, but we also need to understand that one couple, one person is not going to be everything in your life. And so we need to work together to help each other out. You know, I believe that sometimes people have felt guilty when they tried to help people spiritually and it didn't work. And maybe that person leaves or that person doesn't grow. And then now you feel bad because you felt like you had to be all those things in their lives. So if they fail in their finances, you felt responsible because you were the one helping them. And that's not fair. That's not right. And so we can't expect people to be all these things. And if you try to be all these things, let me just say this. Stop it. Just stop it. All right? You can't be everything that you shouldn't want to be. All right? Just stop trying to be everything to people's lives. Uh, there are great programs out there, but I believe also they can help supplement discipling. You know, there are great uh, grief recovery, uh, divorce care, financial peace. You know, there are different programs that the church has, and you can find a lot of these on the Disciple Today uh, workshop, um, or website. I mean, there are a lot of 
great programs out there that, you know, trained professionals have seen the need in the church and, and, and they've gathered their resources and they, they make it. A, there is help out there is what I'm trying to say. There's help out there. Don't get discouraged when one person can't meet all those needs. Amen? Now, I'm all for programs. We have a great program in the church, Chemical Recovery Ministries. I'm all for it. Hands down. But that's not going to fix your addiction problem. You're still going to need spiritual accountability. You're still going to need men and women in your life holding you accountable once you leave the building. We have purity groups, which we're looking to start here soon in Harlem. We have purity groups. But here's the thing. That is not going to make you pure. The program alone is not the answer. Jesus is always the answer. And when you have a program and you have spiritual counseling and discipling paired together, then you have a better chance at recovery, a better chance at growing. But we're not going to have programs negate spiritual discipling. That's just not going to work. You've got to have people in your life that's helping you. And I thank God for all the programs that we do have in our church. But we're not going to just start programs for every need that comes up. We got to be able to get in each other's lives, help each other out, and then where we can't help, then we can pull these programs together to help us out. Amen? You know, when you think about relationships, they are a crucial part to the answer. They're a, a crucial part of the solution to the, a lot of the problems that I believe we have in the church. You know, we used to catch a lot of these things before they became crisis because we were so involved in each other's lives. And before a lot of these things got to a crisis level, we would, ca- we would catch it at the forefront. And, and we got to remember that. We got to remember the benefits that we've, we've reaped from having a been in the disciple of relationship. I know some of your kids are going to thank God one day that you were getting discipled. They don't see it now. They don't understand it now. But there's going to come a time where they understand, wow, you know what? I think God, mom and dad, had people in their lives helping them out. They will see it eventually. But let me give you an example of proactive versus reactive. You know, in the sexual integrity department, this is, this is very important, okay? One of the most important determinants is sexual, uh, with sexual, you're dealing with sexual uh, purity, is close relationships. Is having someone in your life who knows you well enough to know that you should avoid a certain situation. And the only way that happens is when we're open and vulnerable with each other. When we're telling someone in our life, we have that safe place where we can talk to people and say, hey, I don't need to go anywhere around a bar. So if, if, if you see me around, if you see me, uh, you know, heading in a certain way, if you see me involved, if, if I get invited from my coworkers, I need, you to be, I need you to help me out. I need you to snatch me from the flames. Because there are times we're too weak. And people are just reaching and grab us and snatch us out of a, a, a scary situation. Especially when it comes to sexual integrity. You know, I think one of the most important deterrents of sexual sin is consistent, vulnerable, and rewarding male-to-male, woman-to-woman relationships. What do I mean by that? Guys can get together and talk about things and relate to each other in a way that we can't with our wives or with sisters. And the same thing with women. For a guy to struggle with, some women may not understand why he thinks a certain woman is attractive or, or, or why would you even struggle with that? Because men are very visual creatures. We don't really care about the emotional attachment as, as some women may. Now, I'm not saying that that's all men and that's all women. Some women struggle with lust. You know, so, and some guys love attention. But what I've learned and what I've seen is that a lot of the guys who have close relationships with other men have strong convictions in their purity. And they fall less often than those who don't have strong relationships with godly, other godly men and other godly women. And I'm not just talking about people you just say, hey, you know, I, I looked at her. I looked at her. 
look at. I'm talking about people who are going to ask you those uncomfortable third and fourth questions. Why were you looking at it? Today were you looking at it? Where was your wife when you were looking at it? Was the kids in the house when you were looking at it? Is this something you look at often? Is it on your phone? Does your wife have the password to the, to the internet security? On? You don't have internet security? How far did you think you were going to get without it? I mean, those uncomfortable questions that's not think to ask. And then vice versa. The women getting in there and talking. You know how y'all do. Y'all could be on the phone for, for hours. So I'm not even going to attempt to think that I even know what goes on in those phone conversations. I just know my wife is always on the phone. And if she's not talking, she's texting. And it ain't about, she ain't playing Candy Crush. She's talking to somebody. But I believe that I am a pure man today because of the strong male relationships in my life. Do I struggle? Do I get, absolutely. But I have safe places that I can go, that I can be embarrassingly open with. Brothers that will ask me again, how did it go with that? How was it going in that area? And we all need men and women in our lives like that. And I'm not talking about, oh, hey, man, I struggle too. What? How do you struggle with y'all? Don't worry about it. Jesus love you. I love you, but I can't talk to you. I want to get to heaven. I'm trying to be ready someday, right? I want somebody in my life that's going to take purity seriously. That's going to take sin seriously. You know, confessing at the temptation level, making that the habit. Making that the habit. I was tempted. Now, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging someone's beauty. There's nothing wrong with that. Let me let you off the hook a little bit, brothers. Looking at a woman and saying, wow, she's beautiful. That's not sin. Okay? What sin is what you do with those thoughts and that information. Where do you go after you acknowledge the beauty? Where do you go after you acknowledge that the, the attraction? Okay? You can't go beyond that. And this is where you start at the temptation level. Man, I'm tempted to look at that. I'm tempted to, 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 to go there with this, this thought. You confess at that temptation. open with brothers and you get open with sisters in your life. And you don't deal with it. You know, once it, once it fixes that, now you're, you're in dangerous waters. You're giving Satan a foothold. And that will happen Get open as soon as it hits your heart. You know, I'll never forget having a conversation with our brother Nietzsche when he was alive. And, and I remember his conviction was that if it doesn't leave your mouth, it won't leave your heart. And I've, I've, I've taken that to heart ever since. And not just with sexual, but with anything. If it doesn't leave my mouth, it's not going to leave my heart. Anger, bitterness, rage, resentment, all those things we get open about. But you look at the relationship that David and Jonathan had, and in 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, verse 26, Jonathan, sa- Jonathan says, my, um, David says, Jonathan, my brother, you were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. Now, I know it got quiet here because the brothers are thinking, bro, please tell me. <laughs> that says something different in the original Hebrew. <laughs> like, what translation you read, bro? I will make sure not to read that one. But basically what's happening right here is we see the relationship between Jonathan and Dave. We see just how deep it is. See, back in those days, a married couple didn't have the type of relationship we have today. They were married. They had children. And that was pretty much the extent of that relationship. They didn't really confide in each other like we do today. Like, my wife is one of my best friends today. But that wasn't the case with David and his wife. You don't really see David confiding in his wife. And so, in those days, the relationship between two men, warriors, friends, I mean, these guys would lay their lives down for each other. They had that kind of relationship back then. So it wasn't uncommon for Jonathan and David to have this relationship where they were intimate to the point to where they loved each other like brothers. Or compared to a woman, you know what, I feel more connected to you than I do my own wife, is what he's saying right here. And so, 
Jonathan's friendship met a need in David's life that his wife couldn't meet. And that still is true today. I think there are men, there, there are men and, and, and we meet each other's needs in a way that our wives, the women in our lives don't meet. This is why we need strong men relationships. This is why your wife keeps getting on you about picking up the phone and calling some brothers. Because they get it. They understand. You need a, you need a man in your life. You don't, you don't need me to keep telling you what to do. Stop talking to me. Call up a brother. And what does he say? Oh, I'm not close to anybody. I, I, I don't know who to call. I don't want to bother anybody. Jonathan's friendship met a need in David's life. And that was a need that we all need. You know, isolation is not a good thing. Isolation is never a good thing. And being unknown can feed those self-destructive behaviors if we're not careful. When David and Jonathan were friends, think about this, right? When David and Jonathan were friends, David was single. He became very well known, much to the point to where when he would come into town, the women would sing songs about David. And people would get jealous. Saul got jealous because of all the women that were singing about it. They used to sing about him, but now they're singing about David. And so now David's the, the flavor of the month, right? But here's the thing. You don't ever read about David giving into sexual sin while he was single. What was the connection? He still loved God. That never changed. I believe it's because he had a friend like Jonathan in his life. Someone who initiated with him. Someone who went after him. Someone who committed to a covenant relationship with him. That was the difference. Now, after Jonathan had died, there was a change in his relationships. So, Nathan entered his life. Nathan was a prophet. He was a true man of God. It wasn't like he was a worldly person. Right? David shared his dreams to build a temple with Nathan. They had, a God, they had godly conversations. They made plans. They dreamt together. Nathan was supportive of David's dreams and goals. He, 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 he was behind him wholeheartedly. Nathan was also willing to have those hard conversations with David. It was David. It was Nathan who called David out when David had sinned against God with Bathsheba, it was, it was Nathan that God had sent to call him out. But it was during that time when David gave into sexual sin. Because he didn't have that kind of bond with Nathan. He didn't have that kind of relationship, that safe place with Nathan as he had with Jonathan. That need that Jonathan was meeting in David's life was no longer there. And this is why as we mature as Christians, as people in our lives, we cannot be so attached to certain relationships that we don't mature and open ourselves up to other relationships, other covenant relationships, where we have multiple Jonathans in our lives or throughout our lives. Because there are going to be times when you're going to have closer relationships than times when you won't. But you always need somebody in your life that you feel safe with. Someone that's going to be like a Jonathan to you. And so you look at David after, you know, this whole thing with Bathsheba got, finally got exposed. David committed adultery, destroyed his marriage. He tried covering it up. He betrayed his loyal servant Uriah. He had Uriah killed in battle, and he showed no remorse about it. And Nathan called it out. Now, eventually, they had a child. The child was born, but as a consequence of the sin, God took the child's life. By the time David's sin finally got exposed, David was already at a place spiritually where he had never been prior to his friend Jonathan passing away. Don't underestimate the power of relationships. Don't underestimate the power of true friendship. While Jonathan was still in David's life, David was well spiritually. I imagine 
that had Jonathan still been alive and David had been walking on that wall, first of all, he probably wouldn't have been on the wall because he should have been out in the battle anyway. I think Jonathan would have been like, hey, bro, I'm on the front line sending word to David. I'm on the front line. I got your, short, your sword and your shield. Come on as quickly as you can. And David would have been right there next to his friend fighting the battle. But because Jonathan wasn't around, David was alone. And that's not a place to be. Could this have been prevented? Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe every spiritual crisis we go through, we could have prevented it. Because God always provides a way out. And so, yes, it could have been prevented. You know, sometimes it's sad to me how many people in our fellowship years has just dropped out of sight. I mean, not all of them, but some of them dropped out of sight and have shipwrecked their lives. And, and you know, it's sad. You know, their marriages, their families, most didn't and usually pornography is a gateway to a lot of those, those sins. And I can't help but to wonder, man, had they been connected to someone in a committed relationship, could that have been prevented? Was there someone in their lives trying to help them to be proactive? Was there someone in their life digging beneath the surface, encouraging them to be open, encouraging them that they can, they can persevere through this, they can get through this, they can overcome that sin? And I don't think everybody did. I don't think everybody did. I do my best spiritually when I have spiritual people in my life. You just do. Think about where you would be if you dealt with a lot of the sin in your life at the temptation level. I mean, we'd all be like spiritual giants, right? I mean, we think, man, I wouldn't have said what I said to my wife this morning getting ready to church, bro. If I dealt with the temptation, I would have kept my mouth shut. When I was tempted to say something, I should have just, you know. And I want to encourage you, get open with somebody at the church if you did. I find that when I'm alone, when I'm isolated relationally, I am tempted relentlessly. Satan just, I mean, he just bombards me with thoughts and feelings and emotions. And when you're by yourself, Satan sees that as the opportunity of a lifetime, just like he did David. David was by himself. And like the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9, two are better than one. They have a good return for their one. If one falls, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. You know, when you're alone and there's nobody to help you up when you fall, that's a sad place to be. But it can be prevented. It can absolutely be prevented. You know, I think about what about what's going on in the church. What if we need in the bud right as they developed? Sisters confessing, flirting. At the temptation level, I was tempted to flirt with my coworkers. At the temptation level, brothers, bro, I was tempted to 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 uh, to watch this, and, and I know it was, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm just pray for me. But at the temptation level, if we can nip these things in the bud, we would be such we would be at a totally different place because these things, even in the infancy stage, has the potential to become catastrophic problems in our lives. If we don't deal with it at the temptation level, hurt feelings, dealing with those things on the onset and not letting them pile up and build up and last forever, hardening us to other people in our lives. In Ecclesiastes 4.12, one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. If David, a man after God's own heart, can be overpowered, what does that say about you and I? He was overpowered because he was alone. And that's not where we want to be, amen? When should we get started with prevention? When it comes to our children, we need to start while they're young. We need to start while they're young. My son is eight years old, and I'm already talking to him 
about things and how to deal with situations that come up in school. On the temptation level. Because kids got to, if they develop the habit while they're young, it will stay with them as they grow older and become adults. And so we want to start, there are a lot of great books out there about sexual integrity. I encourage you, if you haven't already had that talk, if you're not having it with them, somebody is. And it's not coming from a loving parent who cares about their well-being. It's coming on the school bus. It's on a train ride. On, it's, it's YouTube videos. It's some knucklehead out there saying, hey, look at her. Look at how they do this. That's not how you want your children to learn about sexual integrity. Stop being afraid. Sit them down. Get a book if you need. My wife and I went through the whole series. And I might do it even while he's a teenager. You just never know what kids are being fed today. And if you're not filling in those gaps, somebody is. We got to start young. If you haven't done so, I encourage you to do it again. Um, what's another reward? This is our last point right here. Generational blessings. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 42, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of our Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. You know, another level of their uh, covenant relationship was their descendants. It didn't just, David wasn't just committed to his relationship with Jonathan. He was also committed to his relationship with Jonathan's family. And that's how you know you love somebody. When you're not just there for them, but you're there for their children. That's a love that runs deep. You know, Jonathan was supposed to be the king. And he was, a, he was a very humble man. He, he understood God's will and God's plan to make David king instead of him. And that did not deter him at all. He got behind David's heart and soul. And with David, made a covenant with Jonathan and said, I'm going to take care of not only you, but also your children. Our descendants are going, this, this, this covenant is going to extend beyond us, beyond, beyond here and now, and down to our descendants, our children. And you know, at first, the covenant was just between the two of them, just between Jonathan and David. And then it deepened, and it went down between their descendants. And that's what we want with our families. You know, when the church, we have the perfect setup for this to happen. We invest in each other, we teach each other's children, we watch each other's children so we can go on dates, we go on marriage retreats, some of our kids stay at your house, the singles sometimes babysit for us, campus, teens. I mean, we invest in each other's children in so many different ways. And we're set up to have this happen in our lives. But sometimes, and this is important, sometimes life doesn't go as planned. Life doesn't go as planned. People go through some hardships. Uh, even people we know here in the our kids go through hard times. Uh, some will make it, and we celebrate. But then some will not make it. And we struggle, and they break our hearts, but we're there for each other. Some will go through health challenges. Some will, go through, uh, some will have special needs, and some will develop special needs later on in life. These are the times when we especially need to honor those covenant relationships with one another. Because we never know what's going to happen 5, 10, 15 years down the line. And it helps to know that there are going to be people in your corner, thick and thin, through highs and lows. But that comes with a commitment of being lives. Because life doesn't always work out the way we thought. I thank God that in 2015, when my wife and I went through what we went through with our kids, that God had people in our lives who was there for us, visited the hospital, came by the house, brought us food. And you know, sometimes you wonder, are they doing it just because I'm their minister? And it's like, no, James, don't go there. They're here because they love you. They love your wife and they love your children. They love your children. There's a sister uh, who was in the Manhattan ministry. Her brother, is, uh, he's a voice actor. And he does the voice for one of the Teen Titans characters on the, teen, the show uh, Teen Titans Go. And so, bro, you're messing up my point, man. So, um, 
So let me set that up again. So sister, brother does voiceovers for one of the Teen Titan characters. And, and uh, she found out that that was one of Noah's favorite characters on the show. So she called her brother up and had him record a message to Noah in the cyborg voice and played it for him while he was in the hospital. And let me tell you, his face lit up. He was like, it's cyborg. And I thought, man, she didn't have to do that. She didn't have to do that. But she did it. Why? Because she loves us. So in the church, we're set up for that. We're set up for that. You know, David honored his relationship with Jonathan. Jonathan died. His son, uh, Mephishbosheth, was five years old at the time. And his nurse fled the Philistines and accidentally dropped him, breaking both his ankles, and he was crippled as a result of that. Now, he went from being the prince, the son of a prince, third in line to the throne, worth millions, to now being crippled, alone with a future that was uncertain. In fact, he didn't know if he was going to live or not, because there was a fight for the throne before David eventually got put on the throne. So Saul's other sons were fighting for the throne. And so he had no idea what was going to happen to him. In fact, he even lived in a land called Lodabar, which means land of nothing. Years later, David comes picture and initiates with Jonathan's kids. And David goes on in 2 Samuel 9, it says, The king asks, Is there no one still left at the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness for Jonathan's sake? Ziba answers the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. And he says, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you the kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore you to all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And Mephishbosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. I mean, I think it's, you know, the Bible makes a point to note, it points out, sir, like, why does it keep mentioning that he's crippled in both feet? And I think sometimes because I think it's to highlight the fact that he was needy, that he, he, he had issues. And David still welcomed him into his family. Sometimes we're only there for each other when both feet work, when there are no issues, when everything is good. But they got a little behavior issue. They got some drama. Uh, I love your mama and your daddy, but you got to go. Imagine being in a church where not only you are shown love, but if you weren't here, that same love would be extended to your children. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. That's what we want to build here. That's what we want every single member in Harlem to experience. That kind of love. That kind of commitment. We need to honor our couple. You know, our friends here in the, fel in the fellowship during their ups and downs, they need to know that we're there with them. That we're going to be here. You know, that, that whole situation was tragic for Jonathan's son. But David remembered his covenant with Jonathan. And he kept his word. And that was an opportunity for God. So what are some ways we can invest in the future? What are some ways you and I can invest in the future of the next generation? You know, I think making sure that our kids are getting mentored. Making sure that there are people in their lives. That you're not the only influence, but there are other spiritual influence in their lives. You know, the team workers cannot do the whole, they can't do everything. They're not supposed to do everything. But they're there to help you invest in them, support them. When they have a devotional, when there's something going on, self there. Be there. Support them. Our preteens, they got something going on. You got a preteen? Show up. Be there. Support those who are helping you. 
The investment they put into your children will go a long way, but you got to be there. Make sure that we're together, events, camps, all these things. We got to invest in our children, celebrate together. Birthdays happen. Let's be there for each other. Special times, trips, vacation, thrive is coming up. That's a perfect opportunity for our families to thrive together in one location. I can tell you right now, I am so glad we took our kids to St. Louis. They got to see a part of the kingdom that they don't get to see outside of Harlem. My daughter got to make friends. My son just got to run around with the McCullough's kids, and we were watching, taking turns watching each other's kids. Because that's what friends do. We help each other out. Hey, I want to go to this class. Can you watch my son? Absolutely. I'm going to go to this class. We work each other out. That's what you do when you're friends and you want to help each other. We got a great opportunity for that coming up in July. You know, James chapter 5, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over multitudes of sin. Jesus has given us an opportunity to not only impact individuals' lives, but their children's lives. There's a ripple effect that happens when we save one person, one family. It doesn't just rest on them, but it ripples throughout the rest of their children. We can save whole families just by reaching one person. We can save whole families just by reaching one couple. You don't know how God can use that, but we got to do it. You know, you study the Bible with somebody, you help that person become a Christian, you don't think that's going to have an impact on their family? When they go home and they're a better person, their family like, what's happened to you? The Bible, Jesus, I go to this great church and they're helping me and we're, co- we're committed to each other. And they're going to like you even if they don't like you. And they're going to, just because of me, they're going to love you because they're committed to me. And we're in a covenant, so you better thank God because of it. I mean, think about that. Your kids have to be disciples yet and you're gonna get, they're going to feel loved because you're in the church. God has a way of encouraging and inspiring people to come to him. Jesus is Lord. Jesus me, Senor. I mean, we, when people get to say those words out loud, that's just the beginning of God's promise for them and their children going forward. In Acts chapter 2, verse 39, the promise is for you and your children. And your children. For you and children. You know, I think about my wife and uh, just the impact that she's had, you know, we're, we're great friends with uh, Kevin and Andy Finnerty, the elders in the church. And, you know, we've been friends now for almost 15, about going on 15 years, 14 years. And when we met them, their daughter McCall was not a disciple. We were leading the team ministry at the time. And, you know, they served countless couples. They've helped, they've always had people in their, in their house. They're always serving. They're all, I mean, they were, they, you know, they're just an amazing couple. And so in the team ministry, and my wife was studying the Bible with McCall, and eventually McCall got baptized, and, you know, fast forward a few years, uh, McCall fell in love with another brother, another handsome young man, and, and, and she wanted my wife to be a part of the wedding, and so here we are, wedding, celebrating on the beach of the Bahamas, let me tell you something, you don't go all the way to the Bahamas to be part of unless you committed <laughs> to that relationship, you, you hear me? All right, I just want to put that out there. She asked my wife to be a part of the wedding. You know, and what's amazing about this is that while my wife would study the Bible with McCall, Andy would watch my daughter. And, and that didn't stop after McCall got baptized. After McCall got baptized, Andy would offer to watch and go on dates. If we had things that came up, she would, she would, hey, bring the kids over. Don't worry about it. And it, was, it became this thing in our families where our kids are like, can we go to Mr. Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, the Finnerty's house? Go to Miss Andy's house. And we're like, absolutely, you can go to Miss Andy's house. You can stay over there a couple days if you want. Because <laughs> they love you. And we love them. And we help their daughter become a Christian. And let me tell you, you don't just do it for that reason, but I mean, it's, it's love, man. It's like, here we are, we gave to them, we helped their daughter, and now they're giving back to us, and it just continues and continues, and I'm pretty sure that they'll always be a part of our family. They'll always be involved in our kids' life because they're grateful for what my wife did for their daughter. That's what we do with each other. We invest 
not just in our relationships now, but in the generations to come. We invest in each other. We help each other out. No, we're not a babysitting, I'm not saying we need to be a babysitting company or anything like that, but what I am saying is that extend that love and that commitment to the whole family, to the whole family, because the promise is not only for us, but it's also for our children. And when we get an opportunity, I always appreciate the sisters taking my daughter out for lunch and, and spending time. And, you know, I, I mean, that's just, I'm just grateful for that because we're family and we're there for each other and, um, and also for my son. And so as we bring this to a close, I was going to let this be the last lesson, but I think I'm going to tack on one more thing because I do want to add one more covenant. So we'll do this after, after Easter. But... One another relationships. This is not a goal. It's an expectation going forward in Harlem. We're expecting everyone to be a part of a relationship that's going to help you grow Jesus. That's an expectation. We need to expect it of each other, and we're going to expect it of you. We're not going to go around and, 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 and ask you before, when you come into church, who's your cover? We're not going to do that. We're not going to do We're adults here. But we are going to expect everyone to be in the relationship. We're not going to send out a man. We're not going to check your, 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 we're not going to do all that. We're adults here. And we believe that the time that we spent really looking at this, developing a biblical conviction about it, that put this into practice in their lives. Amen? A covenant of this type, one another. And there's a lot of one another. We're going to look at some of those in our next series. The one another scriptures, because we really got to start putting these into practice if we want to see our lives grow and mature in Christ Jesus. The hope is not that you will see this as a mandate from leadership, but as an invitation to a life that is beyond what you can muster on your own. Think about how far you got yourself by yourself. Now, let's help. Let us help you take yourself further. It's also that you don't realize that I have been crazy to try to do this on my own. The sooner we get to that realization, the more we, the sooner we can get our hearts behind being in these relationships. I hope you guys enjoyed this time as much as I have. To God be the glory.